When exposed to the gospel, no life can remain uninfluenced. Those who hear the Lord's truth will either become harder, more hostile towards that truth, or they will become softer, allowing the Lord to work through that truth in order to transform their lives. History is full of these stories of those who have been persuaded, of those who have been influenced by the very message of the gospel and the very truth contained within. Some people know the story of Billy Sunday, a baseball player who was a baseball player in baseball's earlier years as it was being developed, and that while he was walking with his teammates in Chicago one, one day, they began to stop and plan to mock a guy preaching the gospel on the corner. But Billy listened instead, embracing Christ as Savior. Eventually, he would become a known evangelist. Around that same time, somewhere in the same century, in a different part of the world, there's a story of a South African, a chief of the Hottentot tribe by the name of Afrikaner. He intimidated the people around him with his viciousness. One of those who was intimidated was the governor of Cape Town, who offered a large reward if somebody would bring Afrikaner to him, dead or alive. But then Robert Moffat came, a Scottish missionary, and he came into the land, and the very first convert that he had was this chief, Afrikaner. The story of the Lord's work is known throughout the world. And throughout the world, and, and though time may abound, we see them or hear of them all over the place. Some of them are more known than others. Others just remain unknown except to those who they impacted. Recorded for us is perhaps the most well-known testimony, that of the Apostle Paul. And it is his testimony that we look to this morning. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, as we continue on, and I want to bring to you a message I have titled, A Glorious Salvation, the Testimony of Paul. So please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and, un and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Upon reading this phrase, 
It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. It's not uncommon for people to think of a man by the name of Thomas Bilney. Thomas Bilney was born in 1495. He was known as Little Bilney because of his height, because of his short stature. At one point, he was elected a fellow of Trinity Hall in Cambridge in 1520. According to his very own testimony, his study and his ordination really failed to bring him the peace that he desired until he began to read the Latin translation of the Bible, the Latin translation of specifically the Greek New Testament. And he says this, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, almost sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. This one sentence, through God's instructions and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that the bru my bruised bones leapt for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey or the honeycomb. Thomas Bilney would become a key part of the White Horse Inn, which was a place where a group of theologians met during that era. Those theologians would become very influential into the Reformation. In 1527, Bilney was arrested and forced to recant of his teachings, of his belief. He was eventually released, but in his exuberance for the gospel, he could not contain himself. And so in 1531, he was arrested once again. But this time he was burned at the stake. Following Bilney was a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. Latimer is a preacher who stood firm during the English portion of the Reformation. Latimer was a convert of Thomas Bilney. And eventually he would follow in Thomas Bilney's example and also be burned at the stake in Oxford in 1555. This is the power of the gospel, though. This is the power of truth. One cannot be exposed to it and remain unchanged. In fact, for believers who genuinely desire Christ-likeness, they cannot expect to be transformed without readily and regularly exposing themselves to this gospel, and to the entire truth of the Lord. We see that in the Apostle Paul this morning. Paul willingly exposes his true nature to readers. He never hides the fact that he was a sinner. But Paul also does something very important here. He never excuses his sin either. Too frequently, believers fall into this excuse. They say, I, I'm a sinner, and that's just how things are until I get to heaven. There is a reality in that in which indeed we are tainted by sin and we're always going to be battling that until glorification. But also, that doesn't become an excuse to become complacent, as many people will. Quite the contrary, actually. For someone like Paul, we see this. It actually causes him to pursue righteousness even more. 
knowing that he is a sinner who will not be perfected until his arrival in heaven. Paul doesn't become complacent and say, well, that's just how it is. Paul actually then begins to fight harder for his holiness, putting things into place to guard his heart and to guard his mind, knowing that full well the days in which he lives and we live now are evil. He doesn't say, I am a sinner, and so that's just how things will be. He actually shows an attitude of, I know that my natural inclination is to sin, and therefore I'm going to do all that I can to guard against that. He does this by regularly, regularly exposing himself to the gospel. He reminds himself of who he is. He reminds himself of who Christ is. And he reminds himself of what Christ has done. And that's what we see in our text this morning. We see the testimony of Paul. And it then reminds us of our own need to be exposed to this truth, to be exposed to the gospel of our Lord. Our text here begins... The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is the first of five times that this sentence or this saying will show up in all of Scripture. And every time it shows up, it is in the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and the book of Titus. This phrase captures our attention. Upon hearing it, our ears should perk up, noting that something important is probably about to be said. And so we should probably pay attention. It points us to the reliability of Scripture also, suggesting to us that something that is about to be said is going to stand firm. When the world throws the best of its attacks to undermine the truthfulness of truth, this word, this truth, will stand firm. They will stand firm when professing believers misinterpret, misunderstand, or misuse this word. They will always have ultimate victory because truth always gets the last word, even if that last word is delayed. In the last days, when Satan musters up this greatest army that he can find, it is the word that provides ultimate victory. It is the word that we see in Revelation that slays all of God's enemies simply by their power, simply by being spoken. Their power is seen through their ability to transform lives. They are trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance because in the case, at least in our text here, they contain salvation, they contain the gospel. In just eight Greek words, Paul does a masterful job of summarizing the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. These words needed to happen. Christ Jesus came into the world. They needed to happen because the world stands condemned without the coming of Christ. John speaks of this in his gospel in chapter 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The world stands condemned without Christ, and so as Christ himself says, he came into the world to save sinners. 
Matthew 9.13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And finally, Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And of these sinners, Paul stands chief among them all. And so I want you to note first Paul's substantial sin. Paul's substantial sin. Together, all of 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 reads, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Beginning all the way back in verse 12, the Apostle Paul begins to get extremely personal. He begins to discuss exactly who he is. He really gets very brutal in his assessment about who he is. Verse 13, it says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent or violent opponent. And we get the impression that Paul doesn't write these words flippantly. It's easy to do that with sin. Sin makes us uncomfortable, and so we tend to pass over it quickly. We don't want to talk about it. Even when we do acknowledge it, we try to keep it very light. Oh yeah, I sinned. I I lusted. I mocked. I skipped church. I'm selfish. Whatever it may be. But then we quickly move on to the next thing. And we never sit long enough for that weight of sin to convict us. But Paul never does that, and he doesn't soften the language. There is no denying the severity of Paul's sin, as we saw last week. When we see Paul as he was, he was a violent man in words and in deeds. And we cannot and should not be anything but appalled. Even now, even centuries later, we look upon these words and stand appalled at who Paul was. Paul doesn't deny this. He writes to the Corinthians. We read it this morning. I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That leads him to this conclusion in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He calls himself the foremost of all sinners. Literally, he's writing, among all sinners... I have the first place. By a sin, Paul may not literally be the worst of sinners, but he is certainly the most prominent throughout all of history. And his sins are certainly inexcusable, as they are for anyone. Paul's not writing in a hyperbole here. He's not trying to exaggerate the extent of his sin or trying to show some sort of false humility by how he consistently speaks of himself in this way, by never hiding who he was, he's really expressing a genuine conviction. That conviction is seen here when we realize that Paul's writing in the present tense. He says, I've already been shown mercy. It's already been granted to me. He says that both in the verse prior and the verse after our text in verse 15. 
I have received mercy. It's already been granted to him. And yet he still says, I am the foremost of sinners. I still am the greatest of all sinners, despite receiving all that and despite for, forgoing all my past and being forgiven for that. I still am the foremost of all sinners. That's the result, I think, of having received the grace and mercy of salvation by Christ. When we obtain forgiveness from the Lord and begin to compare ourselves to the righteousness of Christ, we begin to see exactly what we've been forgiven of. And the only conclusion we can come to is, I am the chief of sinners. That's what happens when we are conscious of the divine holiness, that we become convicted by who we are. That's what happens to Paul. He's like Isaiah who, when confronted by the Lord and seeing who the Lord is and who he is himself, Isaiah says, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The thing about Paul, or the thing about Isaiah, or any other person is their weaknesses are our weaknesses. Paul's sins were many. They were atrocious. And we can look on them and condemn them and say, those were awful. But the reality is, it's the same sins that you and I deal with. I know that because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that's the case. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We tend to think about how things are. We lament the state of our society right now. But like Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. We look at Paul and we say, we really need to be like him. But then we get discouraged because we see Paul and, and we're overwhelmed by just how Christ-like he is. But see, the thing is, we're already like Paul. It's not just an example of who we should be that we see in Paul. Paul is an example of who we already are who we are as sinners. He's not just an example of who we should be in holiness. Paul is an example of who we already are in sinfulness. But that should bring us great encouragement. Because the Lord helped Paul overcome that. That's why we have this testimony here. And if the Lord can help Paul, that means the Lord is sufficient to help any of us in our sins. I want to share with you a story and ask your forgiveness in case I've already shared it. I'm at that age in which <laughs> I have the same stories over and over and I forget who I've told them to. It's kind of like a lot of people. We, we have our favorites and we share them with people, but we forget who's heard them, so we repeat them. I may be doing that here. <laughs> but I have a friend who was really, really struggling through some major issues. And one night after church, after a church meeting, he was sharing with me in the parking lot, lamented how awful of a sinner he was. Even saying, I'm really the chief of all sinners. He adopted Paul's phrase here. In an effort to comfort him, I said, you can't really say that. 
And his response was quite simple. Yeah, you're right, I can't. But I know this, if I was the only person on earth, Christ still would have had to die. Ignatius had a similar attitude, saying like Paul, he called himself the least of the faithful. And then he tells his own local church, I am not worthy to be called a member of the Syrian church. Our sins may be manifested differently, especially compared to Paul. We're probably not out there, most of us, I hope, with violent attacks against other people and persecuting. But the reality is we're all alike. And at the heart of that sin is the same thing for all of us, even facing the same thing as Paul. Thankfully, if Paul is the example, we see something more in Paul's testimony. The Apostle Paul is not just noting his substantial sin here. I want you to note, second, that he is noting his meaningful mercy. And so I want you to note Paul's meaningful mercy. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Verse 16, but I received mercy. Paul has become a recipient of mercy. That really becomes a shock to our human system. Thinking that if, if Paul is a chief of all sinners, then he of all people doesn't deserve mercy. He's the least deserving of all mercy, at least in our mindset. The act of mercy on those who deserve it seemed really contrary to reason. But there's a story of a mother who pleaded before Napoleon on behalf of her son. And uh, truthfully, I don't remember what her son was condemned or convicted of doing. But she was seeking pardon for her son, and, and Napoleon replied that the young man had committed whatever offense it was twice, and then said, justice demands death. And the mother responded, I'm not asking for justice, I'm asking for mercy. And then he said, but your son does not deserve mercy. And her response was, if it was deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. That's the point. If we deserved it, it would not be mercy. Paul shares his own unworthiness to the Corinthians. We just read that verse, verse, verse 9 of chapter 15, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But then he goes on to say in the next verse, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Paul, of all people, has little claim to God's mercy. But that is exactly why Christ came. And that's why this is so meaningful here. We know and we often quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But then following that comes the next verses that we also read earlier. And, and they're just full of theological richness that point us to Christ. They say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already 
what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16 is just a summarization of those very words from John. Except now Paul is taking those words and he's applying them personally to himself, saying that Christ came in the world to save sinners, and he is that sinner who needed it the most. But overcoming sin is possible. There's no need to live life in that substantial sin. So how is that possible? In the words of Christ, Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, that's our answer in our text. Those simple words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, it comes with this incredible theology this theology of the incarnation and this theology of redemption. And so don't miss this here, because for salvation, both are needed. If you look at the text in your Bibles, what does it say? Christ came into the world. First, that shows Christ's preexistence. Life didn't begin at birth for him. Somewhere, Christ has already existed. It's just that now through birth, he is physically entering the world. He's coming into the very world that he helped to create. That is the incarnation in which Christ is fully God, now enters the world and becomes fully man without ceasing to be fully God. And so this glorious God, worthy of all majesty, now comes into the world to suffer all misery. And for what purpose? To save sinners. I read you three verses where he says that I came not to save the righteous, but the sinners. That is redemption. This was the plan put into place long before Christ's incarnation. <coughs> the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph confirms this, confirms this before Christ even is born, before he enters. And he, the angel of the Lord tells Joseph about Mary, she will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Every person who enters a physical world does so at the sovereign discretion of the Lord. It's not an occurrence simply so that any of us just may enjoy life either. Eat, drink, and be merry. Each one has a purpose. Each person comes into the world fulfilling a particular function according to the Lord's plan, and hopefully part of that culminates into the saving relationship with him. Jesus Christ comes into the world with a purpose also. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. By his death, he became the substitutionary sacrifice for sin, meaning that he took the punishment that we deserved for the sins that we committed but he took that penalty and then by his resurrection he became the sufficient sacrifice proving that indeed his actions his sacrifice was sufficient enough to cover the just punishment of the lord for those sins the apostle paul now becomes a recipient of those effects of christ's substitutionary sufficient sacrifice and so by the meaningful mercy of God, Paul's substantial sin is overcome. One commentator writes, Paul's sin was of great magnitude. So substantial was his sin, it required a full measure of God's mercy. 
Clearly, the mercy of the Lord can reach anyone. There is no sin that his mercy cannot penetrate. And in that way, Paul becomes an example of just how the Lord can work in a person's life. And that leads us to the final point. I want you to note, finally, Paul's expansive example. Paul's expansive example. Despite what we may think, sometimes God's work in our lives is not all about us. In times of goodness, we may say, oh, how the Lord has blessed me. And in times of trial, we say, oh, how the Lord is doing this to me. See, but not everything is about me. The Lord's work in our lives sometimes is to impact others. We see that in the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery, and then later is imprisoned for attempting adultery with Potiphar's wife. Though Joseph was guilty of none of that. He's guilty of nothing. <coughs> Certainly we can say such moments build godly characters, we see. But that story is clearly not about Joseph. The story was a means for the Lord to accomplish his purposes by making an example of Joseph. Job follows this as well. But with Joseph, he's later placed into leadership. And even if the story isn't solely about Joseph, we see that God is at work, both using it to convict Joseph's brothers of their sin and providing a way to save the entire nation of Israel in times of famine. God's work has a purpose but sometimes that purpose is not always about us. And that's the case for Paul here. The purpose of Paul's substantial sin and the meaningful mercy that he received, they're not just about Paul. Oh, thank the Lord he, he receives that blessing. It's also about the, the greater story of redemption. He writes, I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as a foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. As one person words it, Paul was a means for God to make a spectacle of his very own goodness. By looking at God's pardon of Paul, there can be no doubting the work of God, God's mercy, and the work of Christ. Paul becomes God's example. The sufficiency of, of his work. And that text of verse 16, it shows three ways then in which Paul becomes an example. First, he's an example of the Lord's patience. I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience. The fact that the Lord does not immediately punish sins is an expression of patience. Though any person deserves the Lord's wrath at any given moment, God not only allows first for time for repentance, but he allows second a permanent way to overcome those sins and for forgiveness to be meted out. It's described in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 in this way. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance, his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's Romans chapter 3. But then if you go to Romans chapter 2, the chapter prior, we're told that the purpose of this patience is repentance. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? The Lord's patience is displayed through his forgiveness of Paul. But notice, Paul doesn't just say patience. He says perfect patience. How perfect? Perfect enough to overcome all those sins in verse 13 that Paul lists about himself. Perfect enough to overcome everything that the law condemns of in the prior part, in in verses 8 through 11. This is the perfect patience of Christ. But there's a second part of this example. Because Paul is not only then an example of the Lord's perfect patience, but he is also a demonstration of salvation for the undeserving. He shows us, as we discussed that God's mercy can penetrate even the worst of sin. If salvation is offered to Paul, then all sinners can expect forgiveness, but only if they confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Then they will be saved. For it is by their hearts that a person believes and is justified. And with that mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so Paul becomes an example of salvation for the undeserving. But the third example is that he becomes an example of future belief. And if you look at the text, it says, as an example to those who will believe in him for eternal life. The Apostle Paul is not just an example of salvation to his contemporaries, to those around him at the time. Paul is now an example for subsequent generations, too. If anyone now or anyone in the future ever doubts of God's ability to forgive, they can go back and look at Paul and see that, indeed, the Lord forgave Paul, and so he's capable to to forgive anyone. Allow me to step aside for a moment. And I want to show you something here. So God is saying he's going to use Paul as an example. Paul affirms this in his writing. Has God fulfilled his word here? Did God make an example of Paul? Absolutely. And how do we know? Because nearly 2,000 years later, I'm preaching about Paul as an example of salvation. But that can't be my only proof because all I've done is shown you that I think the word of God is true based on my own experience. I'm basically saying I, I know God fulfilled his word because I'm preaching about Paul. I can't define God's word by my experience because what if my experience conflicts in God, with God's word? Then something's wrong and it's not God's word. People do this all the time to interpret scripture. 
In fact, they do this all the time to even interpret secular ideology. That must be true because that was what I experienced. But we need something more objective than my subjective experience. That's why we can't be self-contained units of knowledge because we can easily get things wrong. And so we go to the Word of God, and then we go to other parts of the Word of God to see if it confirms one another. We seek godly, wise counsel. We seek wisdom from, from godly authors and commentators. And then we seek guidance from godly leaders. If we can't do that, then we're, we're prideful and we can't be taught. So how do we know that God fulfilled his word here? How do we know that he's made an example of Paul? Because it shows to be true throughout all of history. Not just by me preaching once, but there's now a pattern of Paul being set before people as an example since his martyrdom in the AD 60s. Each generation has spoken of Paul to the point that even today, Paul is still used as an example of God's perfect plan and perfect patience. And Paul is still used as an example of undeserving forgiveness. Again, not just by me preaching about him here one time, but by the fact that Christians have used him as an example all throughout history. That then points us to something else. Not only can we not define the word by our experiences, but that tells us something very important. If we see that the Lord has fulfilled this word, that tells us that the word of God is reliable. That all that God will say when he says he will do something, it will come to pass. It may not be in the moment, it may be in the future. So all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation now becomes reliable and trustworthy. Paul's testimony, his expansive example, he's showing salvation as possible for everybody throughout history now. And that's where a heavenly mindset of Colossians 3.1 becomes critical because then it takes us to the work of God and it helps us to see that the work of God has consequences in my life. And that the work of God, though, may not just impact my life, it may be being used to impact other people's lives. Paul's story is probably not one that we would have scripted as we see it. In fact, I think in today's culture, most people would have looked at Paul and tried to run up to him and try to correct his self-esteem. But self-esteem isn't even a biblical concept. But I think that's what most people would focus on. They probably try to comfort Paul and say, Paul, you're not that bad. You're okay. But when they do that, they're actually undermining the work of God. Because what we see is the work of God was for Paul to be made an example of. And so by saying, Paul, you're not that bad, they're kind of saying, well, God's work here isn't important. Paul is saying, yes, I am that awful. My sin is substantial, and my sin is so substantial that I needed this meaningful, magnificent mercy of God. Nothing else could be effective on that sin. And in showing how awful that was and how great God's mercy is, I now, God will use me to be an example to all people. 
none of us will probably be used in the same way as Paul, and that's okay. But Paul does show us that every testimony has a purpose. Some testimonies are more extreme than others. Some testimonies are more dramatic than others. But each testimony is critical to God's plan, critical to a specific purpose. It doesn't matter the story. It doesn't matter the people. Each testimony has a purpose, a purpose, though, to point to the very person who authored that testimony, God. Each story of salvation is meant to be a story that magnifies the greatness of God by showing us the destruction of the sinfulness of man. And such a story comes from being exposed thoroughly to the gospel and fighting for holiness. Chrysostom shares, If you have sinned and God has pardoned your sin, receive your pardon and give thanks. But do not be forgetful of your sin. It is not that you should fret over the thought of it, but you, you may school your soul, not to grow lax or relapse again into the same snares. This is what Paul did, not hiding his actions as a blasphemer, persecutor, and injurer. It's as if Paul is saying, let the life of your servant be openly exposed so that the loving kindness of the Lord might be all the more apparent. For although I have received the remission of sins, I do not reject the memory of those sins. Chrysostom goes on, and this not only made transparent the loving kindness of the Lord, but makes the man himself the more remarkable. For when he has learned who he was before, then he will be more astonished at him. When you see that he came to be out of what he was, then you will commend him the more. So indeed, if we've greatly sinned, then each of us, is, upon being changed, will hope more and more to see God. Actually, we'll talk about that next week. And such an example comforts those who are in despair and causes them to again stand tall in Christ. And so we must continue to expose ourselves to the gospel, seeing who we truly are in order to see who he truly is. Let's pray. Our Father God, in your great and glorious salvation, Lord, we see that you've had a plan that was not only endures for all time, but was set in place before all time, Lord. Father, we thank you that in the greatness of this plan and sometimes our, our inability to see it clearly, Lord, we thank you for this example of the Apostle Paul that you have provided him as an example so that we may see both who he was, but more importantly, who you are and what you can do in the lives of a sinner, Lord. And so, Father, may that cause us to reach out to you all the more. May it cause us to cling to you in all our state, knowing that indeed you are sufficient, that your son was a sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for us, Lord. And Father, may that be where our faith is placed. May that be where our hope is placed. And may it cause us to seek after you more and more, setting ourselves aside and instead looking to the glory of your Son. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.